This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose, with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. I'm honored to have as my guest Dr. Shane Oljiva, who is head of constituency studies at the Institute of Ismaili Studies in London. She specializes in Fatimid history and is the author of two books, The Founder of Cairo, The Fatimid Imam Caliph Al-Mu'iz and His Era, and Towards a Shi'i Mediterranean Empire. Dr. Jiva, welcome to the studio. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So your books are on a period known as the Fatimid era, the Fatimid Empire. So why don't we start off by talking who were the Fatimids and where did they come from? Well, thank you, as I said, for having me with you. Um, The Fatimids were an Ismaili Shi'i dynasty who reigned over a vast swathe of the Mediterranean, southern Mediterranean, i.e. North Africa, all the way from Tunisia up until Egypt and parts of Syria. Um, And they reigned from 909 to 1171 CE, so about two and a half centuries of of rule um, over this southern Mediterranean uh, swathe of land. Let me ask a follow-up question to that, which is you mentioned that they're an Ismaili Shi'i group. Uh, who, who are the Ismaili? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the Ismailis are a branch of the Shia um, that are part of the broader Shia community, but where they become a distinct group is after the time of uh, Jafar al-Sadiq, Imam Jafar al-Sadiq, who died in 765 CE. There was a split within the Shia themselves, and those who followed his son called Ismail then come to be called Ismailis, and then those who followed his other sons, uh, one in particular called Musa al-Kazim, eventually come to be called the Ithna Asharis. So that's who the Ismaili Shia are. As we can gather from the title, The Founder of Cairo, the Fatimids come to be identified with Egypt. Mm-hmm. Is that where they got their start? No, they arrived from Syria, but they started off in North Africa, and they established themselves in what used to be called Ifriqiya, which is parts of Tunisia and Algeria today. And the first city that they built, um, which is named after the first uh, Fatimid uh, sovereign, is called Al-Mahdiya, because the person was uh, Abdullah Al-Mahdi, the first Fatimid sovereign was called Abdullah Al-Mahdi. And Al-Mahdiya, of course, is a coastal city that exists and continues to thrive in Tunisia today. So they found this small state in Ifriqiya, in Tunisia. How does it grow to become a wider state? What were they doing there? (laughs) So they begin as this Ismaili Shi'i North African dynasty, if you like, or dynasty that begins in North Africa. But in the model of governance that they develop over the course of their 50-year rule, or 60-year rule actually, in in North Africa, they develop a way of being inclusive, which means that although the majority of the people over whom they rule are actually non-Ismailis and sometimes even non-Muslims, they develop ways of governance which enable um, Muslims from different Sunni backgrounds, uh, Christians, Jews, and others, to contribute to the endeavors of the state, if you like. And so they are actually rather successful in their state building, and they build up a very powerful navy, they become economically extremely affluent, and so it means that within 60 years of beginning their rule in North Africa, they end up actually also establishing their authority in Egypt, and in fact for a whole century after, it is they who get recognized in Mecca and Medina as the true rulers over the Muslim world at the 
the time. So it's very interesting that their reach becomes much broader and greater across that whole Mediterranean region. This is an interesting point that you raise because up until this point, the two other sort of known caliphates are that of the Umayyads and the Abbasids. Mm-hmm. And they tend to be more about setting an example by ruling. But what you're saying is that the Fatimids, were they interested in converting people to Ismailism or were they just more about ruling over this large Uh, heterodox states? I think they do both, which is also very fascinating for me. And one of the kind of ongoing issues that is is a matter of much debate among the few people who do work on Fatimids is this idea as to what is it that they were really trying to do? Because they had a very active dawah structure, which was operating with the purpose of converting people to the Ismaili cause. And that dawah structure continues, unlike in the Abbasids, of course, for the Abbasids, you know, a century and a half before, they also use the Dava structure to come to power. But once they come to power, very quickly they dismantle the Dava structure because it becomes an alternate source of power now. And there are issues with that. Um, the Fatimids face a similar issue uh, in terms of how they now manage their Dava, but they never disband it. In fact, the Dava becomes an arm of the Fatimid state, the purpose of which is then to propagate for the cause of the Imam, but they don't seem to, I haven't come across any evidence that shows that they actively proselytize or convert in the territories in which they reign. But the Dawah continues to do that kind of work outside the Fatimid lands. Was this part of the Fatimid-Abbasid rivalry? Yes, I think there is some of that clearly. Um, And also it's very interesting that the Fatimids having begun in that sense from nowhere, you know, emerging out of a 150-year history of what they call the Dor al-Satr, which is a period of concealment, which meant that you really didn't know about the Fatimid Imam Caliphs or the Ismail Imam Caliphs before then. They emerged from that kind of a background, but when they establish themselves in North Africa, they make the claim to be Imam Caliphs almost from the get-go. And that's interesting because you have the Umayyads of Spain just across, of course, and where the Umayyad Amirs had established themselves since 755 CE, and yet they kept calling themselves Amirs. They don't take on the mantle of the Caliphate like the Abbasids had until 20 years after the Fatimids pronounced their Caliphate. So there is clearly some dynamic going on there too. Interesting. So your book is about the Imam Caliph Mm -hmm. Mm al-Mu'iz. Who was he and why why is he so notable? Mm -hmm. He's the fourth of these Fatimid Imam Caliphs and his dates of rule are 953 to 975 uh, CE. So that's the kind of period we're talking about. 22 year reign. It's a fairly short reign. But it is a reign where you find very significant developments happening within the Fatimids themselves. So it is in his time that they make this transition from being a North African dynasty, if you like, to what I call a Shi'i Mediterranean Empire, because they are able to extend their rule all the way to the shores of the Atlantic on towards the West. And it's a very there's a very lovely little story in some of these Fatimid sources, which talks about how the commander Jauhar, who is also the commander who is then sent to Egypt for the Fatimid conquest of Egypt, but when Jauhar first arrives at the shores of the Atlantic, he actually has some fish from the Atlantic, you know, put into clay jars, live fish, and sent to the court of Al-Muiz in Mahdiya to show him that, no, his writ now kind of reigns all the way to the Atlantic. 
And then also under al Muiz, they are able to then extend their authority all the way into Egypt, you know, uh, found the city of Cairo and, you know, expand in that way um, so that they become a major uh, Mediterranean power in the region at the time. So the conquest of Cairo is in 969 mm-hmm. of the Christian era. Egypt at this time is still over 50% Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, the, the Coptic Christian Church has a very strong identity. So how does this new group of Muslims, the leader of whom considers himself to be caliph, mm-hmm. uh, how do they deal with this? And how does the local population respond to them? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting, that question. And I continue to be fascinated in how savvy the Fatimids are at managing ethnic and religious diversity at that time in this region. And I think that's because, as I say, they learn um, about this and how to handle and how to work with different groups, um, Shia, Sunni, Khariji in North Africa. And they seem to then... um, implement, if you like, the lessons learned there. So even in the way the Fatimids arrive in Egypt, I think is very interesting. It's very instructive in that the sources tell us uh, Al-Makrizi, whom I've translated in that first work that you were mentioning, who is, of course, a Mamluk um, Sunni historian writing 300 years after, but very interested in the Fatimids as almost a mirror for princes for the Mamluks to say, look how the Fatimids ruled in this region. But he gives us this story, for example, of a 100,000 soldiers Fatimid soldiers arriving into Egypt. It takes them seven days to cross the bridge at Giza, etc. But the army is pretty much ceremonial. All the negotiations have been done beforehand through the Dawa and the diplomacy route. So there's hardly any fighting, that there's no major battles, certainly, in taking over. And I think it's in the way, so if I give you one example, when the Fatimids arrive in Egypt, which, you know, what they do is that in terms of the administrators who were there serving from the previous regime, they don't just get um, marching orders, you know, lock, stock and barrel. In fact, they actually retain most of the administrators from the previous Sunni regime, mm-hmm. uh, but they then have a North African administrator, season one, paired up. With, a, with an Egyptian one. And they continue ruling in that way until such time as whichever of the two is seen as appropriate to now carry on. And I think that in doing that, they provide this kind of transitional ways of managing their authority and leadership and their governance of the state. The other thing that I think is very interesting, particularly regarding the point you were making about absolutely the fact that the indigenous population in Egypt um, at that point was significantly Coptic and, you know, large numbers of them. And so how were they to manage? And whereas we know that the Copts and some of the Jewish communities that were there as well, people from those communities were part of the administration of previous uh, regimes because that was naturally the case, uh, as you would expect. What the Fatimids do, which is a little bit more distinctive, is that they enable some of these officials to rise through the ranks of the Fatimid administration. So you have, for example, a chief minister, for example, at one point under Al-Muiz's successor, Al-Aziz, called Isa bin Nestorius, who is an Nestorian Christian and who rules as the chief minister. He does not have to now become a Muslim to hmm. serve in an Ismaili caliphate. Um, and that, I think, that model of 
opening it up in that way and being more inclusive regardless of religion i think means that the fatimids do two things one they don't just remain a minority government ruling over a minority kind of you know with minority groups kind of giving them allegiance they are in allowing these people to rise and and serve they get the more most competent people available to actually serve in their administration but they also get those communities then to be more inclined to fatimid rule so you know they it works both ways the other I, they're not really a minority group uh to look at but uh is that egypt was a sunni yes province mm-hmm. or, or or sunni nation mm-hmm. um who's now been being governed by a shi'i how does that play out over the trajectory of mm-hmm. fatimid rule mm-hmm. Yes, it's very interesting that in the guarantee of safety that the Fatimids issue when they first arrive in Egypt which is the norm in which you know people assured themselves or notables or significant segments of the population assured themselves of the guarantee of their life and their livelihood as it were when the Fatimids issue that guarantee of safety they very specifically mention the sunni populace and they talk about the fact that those who have followed the companions of the prophet and the jurists who've come after them in giving their legal opinions etc those are all valid so in their very arrival in egypt they are also um declaring that sunni muslims of different madhabs whether they are shafi's uh, hanbali you know hanafi maliki are actually accepted and they go on further to talk about how each of these groups can actually practice their madhab in their mosques which the fatimids provide the upkeep for and also by and large the acceptance of their practices so they create i think a platform by which people of different religious traditions including the Jews and Christians are then allowed to be um practicing their own interpretation uh so long as overall public order was maintained and so long as as far as the public square goes it's the fatimid uh, writ that prevailed what happens to the fatimids uh, mm-hmm. as you mentioned they ruled for about two and a half centuries mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. what was their eventual outcome yeah one question that often gets posed to me is well ultimately they failed because egypt remained sunni and that is certainly one reading but my sense is that i don't get a f- sense that the fatimids actually set out to convert people whom they rule over so unlike the safavids for example in iran you know a few centuries later where you find that iran was mainly non shia it was mainly sunni pre safavid post safavid it is mainly shia now of course because of the various you know syncretist movements the sufi you know tariqas that develop under the safavid so it's not like for like but i find that under the fatimids um who are the by the way the only shia dynasty that have ever ruled over egypt mm-hmm. pre the fatimids and post the fatimids um that doesn't ever seem to have been the fatimid goal so they rule over that large period and then eventually like any dynasty as Ibn Khaldun would remind us uh, you know there's a rise and there's a fall and there are various reasons for it of course there are certain internal weaknesses that develop particularly the Fatimids are susceptible when it comes to succession because they pay such close attention to lineal descent okay. if there are any splits within the family itself within the reigning family itself about um 
competing claims being made by another son, for example. You know, it's it's more susceptible to then splits within the family. And when you have that, then of course that splits those who are at least believers in that viewpoint about who they are to follow. So there is there is some of that that happens in the time of Almustan Sirbila, and you have those who end up following his son Nizar, you know, coming to be called the Nizari Ismailis, and you have those who follow his other son, Mustansir's other son, called Al-Mustali, who then go on to split into further groups, into the Taibi uh, Dawa, and then further into what we call today the Daudi Bohras in mm-hmm. India, mm-hmm. and the Sulemanis who live in Yemen and in parts of Saudi Arabia. So you get those splits happening, which is due to an internal um, fissure. But you also have external factors, of course, the ri- you know the arrival of the Crusades in the region, the rise of the Seljuks, and therefore the strengthening of the Abbasids, you know, various other reasons um, for eventually their decline and their downfall in 1171. And they are uh, conquered by Salahuddin. Yes, they who, are. Salahuddin al-Ayyubi. And interestingly, he comes initially as and, and serves as a vizier to the Fatimids, but then also dismantles them pretty much very quickly after. As politics tends as, to go. Absolutely. Well, this has been fascinating. I really would like to thank you for joining us today and talking about this topic. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. For a transcript of this episode, alignments to the Texas and National Standards for Social Studies, and links to more information on this topic, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's 15minutehistory.org. And for even more, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. The University of Texas is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in this or any episode of 15-Minute History do not reflect the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its constituent colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.